chapter 4. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are currently studying through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, as we make our way through the New Testament, book by book. And we are thoroughly enjoying ourselves as we make our way through this book. By the way, the Hope Ministries that we're partnering with and serving, uh, we're going to have opportunities to show up on their, at their facilities and bring uh, the, young, the young ladies or the women, the single moms and their children to church and also potentially the, the family facility that has full families and everything. And so if you could be in prayer related to that, we're going to be um, picking them up and bringing them here and they need to be loved and welcomed and, and uh, cared for like, in, like any of us do. And um, so we want to keep that in prayer and, and we'll also maybe maybe making available to you opportunities to help bring them to church and, um, and, and serve them in that way. So just a little heads up, you can keep that in prayer. That would be a blessing. Hebrews chapter 4, let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest." Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There, therefore, there, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for another opportunity to be molded and shaped by your Holy Spirit through your word. We are grateful that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's all the things that we need it to be and more. And right now, Lord, as we want to worship you in the study of your word, We pray that your spirit would teach us all the things that he wants to teach us and make application of all the ways that we can apply these verses to our lives. We thank you for his ministry and being being able to do that so well. So we yield our hearts and our lives to you. Speak to us whatever you want to speak to us about, Lord. We're yielded before you. We thank you for the privilege of being able to do this together as a family. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, these Jewish believers are contemplating uh, going back to Judaism. As we've seen, they've been tempted uh, because of persecution. The temple's going full steam ahead at this time. It's only two or three years before uh, the, the Roman general Titus would come in and fulfill Jesus' prophecy by throwing one, well, every stone down from that temple. And the only thing that's left today is that outer retaining wall. Uh, that's commonly referred to as the Wailing Wall. It's not part of the temple. It's part of the retaining area outside of it. And so these Jewish believers are um, contemplating leaving Christ, rejecting Christ, whatever, however you want to word it. Uh, he says, as we saw last week in chapter 3, departing from the living God. So that's the writer's as- assessment when he says, see to it, brethren, that you are not found with an evil heart departing from the living God. And so they were... under incredible pressure and so they were thinking because of this pressure of this persecution that if they went back to Judaism and thus did not identify with the Lord Jesus anymore as their Messiah 
that somehow they would escape. And the writer has mentioned by the Spirit of God, as we've seen, that <laughs> that's the worst decision they could ever make. They surely won't escape. Uh, they may escape persecution, but they won't escape God's discipline and God's judgment. And so that's why we saw the writer say, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the writer is trying every way he knows how. And mainly he does it through quoting the Old Testament by giving a biblical basis for his uh, suppositions and his, his, his thesis, so to speak, that the Old Testament scriptures uh, say to them that they should not go this course, that they are going, continue in this course that, that they're traveling on. And so to reject Christ, and that's what he's getting at, is to reject God himself because Jesus is divine. He's not just human. He not, didn't come just as a human man, a perfect human man, God in human flesh, but also he is divine. And so uh, that's what the writer zeroed in on in the last couple of weeks. And basically what he's saying is this to these believers, what you are being tempted to do as, as those with the Jewish heritage is nothing new to Judaism. He's, he wants them to understand that what you're engaged in is nothing new. Your temptation is nothing new. It's old as the hills. I guess that's a saying that we still use today, old as the hills. I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but it's nothing it's brand new to you. This is something that's been going on for a long time. Your ancestors had a lot of experience with rejecting God too and not believing God's word. And so Jews are so proud of their heritage but just like all of us, we can be very selective in our memory related to our heritages and, and, and things that we would rather not discuss or think about it or think about. And so this writer, as we saw last week and the week before, he's bringing them to a conclusion that's inescapable, that they can't escape from. And the, the, the conclusion is just like it didn't work out well for the Old Testament Jews that that didn't believe God's word and rejected the things that God was saying to them, so too you won't escape if you do the same thing. And so as we saw last week in Numbers 13 and 14, God judged them by saying, because you didn't believe me and what I said about the, the promised land and about, and more specifically, my capacity and my ability to give you that land, despite what you see with your eyes and with your understanding, because you reject that, no adult 20 years and above are going to be allowed to enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb because they did believe God's word. And so the writer said in chapter 3, verse 10, you can look back there briefly if you'd like, uh, he, he said, therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And so the issue is not sin directly. The issue is their heart. The issue is not believing God's word and trusting in God's word in the face of incredible evidence that God's word never fails and that his track record with them is flawless and perfect. In the face of all of that, it, that's why it's so evil. I mean, the more revelation we receive from God, the more accountable, accountable we are for being a proper steward of that revelation. That's why when a person knows a lot more about God than somebody else and they reject it, then there's more consequences to them for their lives. And so that was the case with them. And so he said they always go astray. That's a pretty heavy statement. Always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. We're told in Scripture that the Old Testament Jew, Jews, Old Testament saints or, or the Jewish people, they knew all about the acts of God. And he makes this clear distinction between knowing the acts and the works of God and knowing his ways. He speaks about Moses and other places that Moses knew his ways. People saw the acts of God, Moses knew his ways. It's a difference between the two. And so he's been building this case, and that's why in verse 11 he said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Then he told us in, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 3, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And as we saw last week, there are these repeating words that we saw. And we're going to continue in our text this morning. Those two words are today and the, the word um, here. 
And, and because God is always speaking. He's always revealing himself and compelling his people to trust his word. That message is going out every single day. Any day that it's called today, which is every day. Anytime you find yourself within a day, you can say it's today. I know it's not new revelation for you. You know that. Um, but I'm, it takes me a while. I have to get caught up to these things, catch up with you. But today is a day where God is speaking, and he's always in, encouraging us to believe his word and to trust him. So that's why he says, exhort one another daily while it is called today. Because that's how he in part uses or, or speaks to us on any given day is through the body of Christ. And that's why we're supposed to exhort one another and encourage one another daily because we need it. Because sin deceives. As I go about my life and I sin without repenting, it hardens my heart, but it also deceives my heart. And over time, and God doesn't want this for any of us, that my heart will get hardened and so deceived that it'll, be, it'll get worse and worse and worse. And so one of his protection mechanisms that he's set up, because he knows that we need it, is he uses the rest of the body of Christ to interrupt people's uh, lives and their, their way they're going about things and be able to, in a loving, tactful, appropriate, biblical way, to say, hey, this is an issue right here. And not only is this an issue, but you can obey God's word. Again, as we saw, exhortation has always an encouraging element to it. Not just that you're not measuring up, but that you can line up with God's word by, by God's grace. And so that was very important for us to see. Then he said in verse 16, as he closed out the chapter last week, for who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And that's what we're going to get to today. But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So he's be he began talking about last week these, this whole issue of entering God's rest. And today the writer will touch on that Jesus is greater and Jesus is better because that's the theme of the book. Uh, he's better than Joshua, but he mainly focuses on in this chapter that he's a better Sabbath. He's a better rest. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And, and he uses the word rest or a similar word, the word cease, nine times in our text. So it's a real important theme here, the, the theme of rest. Rest is really important to God. If you do a study through the Bible, you're going to see so many times God emphasizes the concept of rest in his people. First of all, he gave them the, the, uh, the, the weekly Sabbath, which was Friday night sundown to Saturday evening sundown. That was the Sabbath. That still is the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. It can be a day of rest for us, but it's technically not the Sabbath. And you can worship on the Sabbath. You don't have to worship on the Sabbath. That's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother issue. Uh, but the point is, is that we should have a day of rest. That is, that is biblical. Uh, but the, the Sabbath is a very specific time that he set aside for the Jews. And sometimes people say, well, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they're all repeated except that we should keep the Sabbath. And I disagree with that. Because the New Testament says that we are to engage in the Sabbath, but we engage in it a different way. And all the commands in the, in the Ten Commandments, first of all, were given to the Jews. And so as believers, we obey the law of Christ to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That takes care of nine of the Ten Commandments. And then the last one, the, the, the Sabbath, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, that we rest in him and we fulfill that that way. So... Uh, that's, that's where it all started. And he's going to talk about, you know, he's going to quote Genesis chapter 2 related to this weekly Sabbath. That's, but that's the first Sabbath. But they, they didn't really always obey that first Sabbath, the Jews. You remember why they were in the wilderness. And he told them very specifically that I'm going to give you double manna one day a week so that you don't have to go out and gather on the Sabbath. And of course, they messed that up. They went out and looked for manna. No manna was there, and they didn't rest on the Sabbath. And then on the other days, they went and tried to save up so they wouldn't have to go out every day and collect it, and then it went bad. And so like, just like all of us, you know, trying to find some, you know, escape route or some uh, exception or loophole, 
we're not the first ones to come up with loopholes. <laughs> That's in uh, human nature very uh, pervasively. So he gave them that weekly Sabbath. They didn't always keep it. But then there was a yearly Sabbath. And if you study Deuteronomy and Numbers and the Old Testament, you'll see that God laid out uh, a very specific plan for their agrarian society of farming, that they were to work the land six years, and on the seventh year, they're supposed to let the ground uh, lay fallow or not work it or plant more seeds and all of that. And God, would, God gave them a supernatural uh, ability to, to have all the food that they need for that year. Now, think about that. God has you work for six years, and then you take the seventh year off. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm all for that. I'm all for bringing that back. That's actually where the word sabbatical came from. It's from the word Sabbath. And, that, and then so they would, they would work for six years and then take a sabbatical for, for one year. But they messed that up too, just like all of us can mess things up. And so they stopped resting that uh, or having that day, that seventh year off. And, and so from about 1050 BC all the way till they were conquered by the Babylonians. It's about 490 years. They ignored that. And the seventh year they still planted and they still harvested and they, they, they did that for 490 plus years. But as we know, God is not mocked. <laughs> Whatever a man sows, quite literally in that instance, that shall he also reap. So God made sure that, they were, that God was going to get his Sabbaths and that, re, that land was going to rest. And that's why, in part, they were captured and were taken under captivity by the Babylonians. And the, there was three ways of that. And the last one ended in 586 B.C. Jeremiah was prophesying to them, warning them and all of that. And he got carried away, uh, you know, at the last of the three uh, conquests there in 586 B.C. But, but the, what God was going to do is he was going to take them in captivity for 70 years because if you divide 490 by 7, you get 70. So he was going to put them in captivity and get all his years back related to the Sabbath and letting the, the ground rest and so forth. And, and, and so that's, that's what happened. And then now as we've been looking at, he's been talking about another type of rest, You've been talking about the Jews getting into the promised land and that that was a rest because they had been in bondage in Egypt and they'd been wandering in the wilderness and so forth. And God knew when they get to their own land, that was going to be, comparatively speaking, restful for them. And so that's what we've been looking at. We saw that last week and, and even earlier. There are about 1.2 million Jews that never reached the promised land, that never entered his rest. These were adults, both men and women, 20 years of age and older. And the children underneath that, they made it. But those that were older, as we've seen, uh, did not make it. So that's a lot of people that, that fell in the wilderness and never entered his rest because of their disobedience. But what we need to see in all of this is that God just isn't doing this or wanting this because of just for, for uh, rules or for the sake of making commands just so people can obey him, you have to understand that our God is a loving father. And what father wants his child to work to the bone and never have any rest? It's just not in a father's heart. And obviously his heart is infinitely greater than our hearts as fathers and and, and of parents. And so he wants to bless all these things, the seventh, the Sabbath, you know, the, the weekly Sabbath, the yearly Sabbath. It's all because he wants to bless. He wanted to bring the children of Israel into the promised land to bless them. It's all has a heart to bless. And so we need to see that as we go through because we're going to get to another type of rest that, that, that uh, is relevant to us. And God's heart behind it is because he loves us and he cares for us. Now notice in verse 1, he tells us God's plan of rest continues to this day. He says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Uh, and I want to pause here for a second. So there wasn't the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, not that gospel, but the gospel means good news. And so God gave him the good news that he was going to give him the promised land and he was going to fulfill all those things. And there also was a, a uh, they did reveal of a, a, a coming Messiah that was revealed to the, the Jews at that time. So it wasn't that they didn't have anything related to the gospel, our gospel that we talk about, but specifically he's talking about the good news of giving them this promised land and being able to enter into his rest. 
But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So he says, the promise remains of entering into his rest. What promise? What promise about which is he speaking? The promise that God will give us the rest that we need, no matter what it is, no matter what kind of rest that we need, the promise is still there. And so he's going to get to a very specific kind of rest. But the, the point is, in this verse, is that he gives a promise that he's going, to come, he's going to back up what his word says. Now, related to the Jews and them not believing God, related to his capacity to give them victory over their enemies in the, in the promised land, you know, that was their, that was their promise that he was going to be faithful, that there, it doesn't matter how big the, the giants are, and it doesn't matter if, if they appear like grasshoppers compared to the people in the land. It doesn't matter. All that's irrelevant. Think about David and, and, and taking on Goliath. The size of Goliath was, was irrelevant because of the size of David's God was much bigger than that giant. So all of these things, maybe you're dealing with something today where the, the situation seems so massive and so big and so impossible, but yet there's contradictory, it appears anyway, promises that God's made in his word, and you're having a hard time believing both of those or processing both of those things. God wants us to honor him by trusting his word no matter what our physical circumstances tell us. I don't know if you've noticed, but in all through the history of God's people, he puts us in impossible situations so that he can do what only he can do and get the glory. That's why he uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So when he uses our lives, people go, oh, I get it. It's because they have a great God, not because that person's so brilliant. And so that's important for us to keep in mind. Now he tells us they're also to fear or have an awe or respect for it. And he says, so we don't come short of it. See, their ancestors didn't fear. What if the children of Israel feared and had, had sobriety related to when God says something, we need to trust in that and we need to believe it, we need to act upon it because he has this incredible track record with us. What if that happened? Well, they, wouldn't have, they, wouldn't have, they would have been in the promised land pretty quickly. They would, I mean, 14 days is the, all, all it takes to get from Egypt there to there. So they, they wouldn't have fallen. And, and so he, he says, don't be like them. Have sobriety, have an awe related to God's word. And so they didn't mix faith with the word which they heard. They didn't, they heard what God said, but they didn't mix it with faith. They, and all faith is, we can put all different kinds of definitions into the word faith, but all faith is, is trust. It's all it is. I'm not minimizing, I'm just saying it's not a conductible force and all these crazy things that we've heard uh, taught uh, in, in Christendom. It's, it's just trust, and, and we have a big God, and, and, and even a little bit of trust in a big God accomplishes big things. Jesus said you can throw a mountain into the sea if you just had the faith of a mustard seed. He's not saying have more faith. He's saying have, have the faith that you have in, a, in the big God that you have, and, um, and, and amazing things will happen. So they never mixed it with faith. They didn't trust that Jesus was going to back up what he said when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And no matter what persecution you hit, I will give you the grace and the power to be faithful to me, even if it means giving up your life. They didn't believe that. These current Jewish believers did not believe that God could, could keep them and sustain them, even in the face of this incredible persecution. Verse 3. For we who have believed, so he's including himself with these believers, we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, a week or two ago, we, he quoted Psalm 95, just like he's quoting Psalm 95 here. What's interesting is that David wrote this psalm by the Holy Spirit, and he uh, wrote this around 400 years after they had reached the promised land under Joshua. This is, this is around 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ. And so and when they came to, to Canaan under Joshua, they entered into the rest about which God has been speaking, all those that had been under 20 years of age. And so uh, this is where we kind of start getting into him getting at. He's going to cover it in a few more verses too, but where we get into how Jesus is, is, is better because Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. 
he's a better Sabbath. And that's why he says, we who believed do enter that rest. We who have believed have entered into God's rest. It's a beautiful rest. It's a wonderful rest. And I want you to notice in the middle of verse 3, he says, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. With the Israelites in the wilderness, all those things that God had promised he would do for them, in eternity past, those things had been determined that he'd be faithful in doing those things. But also the, the, the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus' death upon the cross. You know, before the foundation of the world, the, 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 the Savior was, was crucified in God's mind and God's heart before the foundation of the world. And I want you to notice the word finished. It's past tense there. Although the works were finished. What did Jesus say on the cross? One of the seven things he said is, it is finished. Paid in full. To Tetelestai. He's, he, the debt has been paid, however you want to word it. It is finished. And so we're, we are worshiping and resting because of a finished work. He's going to get into the high priest uh, in, the, in the latter part of this chapter and into the next chapter. And no high priest ever had a finished work, ever. They had to go in that Holy of Holies once a year and do, perform that duty that they were called to. So that's why he says, we who have believed do enter that rest. It's a beautiful rest, and, it, and that rest has, has uh, its origins all the way back before the foundation of the world. And then he says, for he, verse 4, has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, I think he's getting at this because he, first of all, wants them to know there's nothing wrong with resting. Even God rested. Now, was God tired? God wasn't tired uh, after six days. He's all-powerful. It's talking about him ceasing from his creative works. He ceased. Because even with our rest that we have as believers, that we'll get into in a moment, we spiritually are still supposed to be very engaged in, in giving our lives away for the Lord. There is work. But there's a certain type of work that we're supposed to cease from. Uh, as, as busy as we could possibly be, there's still a work that we're supposed to be resting from since we are believers. And then he says, and again, in this place, verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it's been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, again, David wrote Psalm 95 400 years after they entered into his rest. That's what he means when he says in verse 7, after such a long time. And there's the repeating words again. Today, did you see that? Today and also the word here is repeated again. He says, do not harden your hearts. Today God's speaking Today, you need to hear. If God is speaking today, we need to be hearing today on any given day. And so he says, don't harden your hearts. Basically, what he's saying is, why would you go and leave rest to go to non-rest? doesn't make any sense. Here they get to rest in Christ. Their spiritual uh, work has been, you know, there's no spiritual work to be done anymore. And now they're going back to the law of Moses? It doesn't make any sense. Now you're going to, you know, go back and try to, to go, you know, earn something before God related to salvation? And then he adds to it in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. See, again, he's just driving this point home related to this spiritual rest. God had a great rest, a greater rest than reaching the promised land. And that's why David, again, 400 years later, spoke of another today, the day of, of entering a superior rest. And that rest is a better rest because it's the better rest the Son gives. It's because the Son accomplished what he has accomplished, and, and that reveals that Jesus is better because he provides a better uh, Sabbath, a better rest for us. Moses didn't lead God's people into to God's rest. Joshua did. And, and so that's why he quotes Psalm 95. David write that, wrote that 400 years after. And so that's what he's saying. 
Psalm 95, David is quoting this whole thing about today and hearing God's voice and resting. That happened so far after they entered into the promised land and entered into God's rest. So he's speaking of something else. What is it? What is he saying to these Jewish believers? He's saying, you're tempted to go back to this old rest, which isn't really rest at all. It's really work. You've been on vacation, and now you're going to go back to work? And it's an inferior rest anyway. And David spoke about a future rest that even the children of Israel that made it into the promised land didn't receive. And that's why he says in verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, some people quote these verses, especially Seventh-day Adventists, uh, to try to support that believers should be keeping the, se- the, the six-day Sabbath, I mean, the, 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 the Saturday Sabbath. And uh, some people are Seventh-day Sabbath. They, they quote these verses to support this, and you can't see that from the context at all. Because we, we've already seen from the context that that David, he's quoting David, and David had a seventh-day Sabbath, but David is still speaking of another rest that they hadn't experienced yet, that was far different than anything that they'd experienced up to that point. There remains a rest for the people of God, and when we enter it, we cease from our works as God ceased from, from his. So really, what's he getting at? What is this spiritual rest there that he says in verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. God's rest for his people is a spiritual rest. We rest from our works as a basis of attempting, you know, people try to get a right standing with God based on their works. And all of the major religions have a works-based salvation. You gain something in eternity, whether it's eternal life or or a, a greater reincarnation or whatever it is, Everyone has something related to working for God. That's why we say religion, man-made religion, is man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is God's attempt to reach man. And so there's an infinite difference. And so that's the real issue with these Jewish believers because they already are on vacation, so to speak. They already are resting. They're already resting from their work spiritually. They stopped trying to earn a right standing before God based on their spiritual performance and and charitable deeds and trying to obey the the law of Moses, all 613 laws within the law of Moses. And now they're being tempted to go back to work again when God says, I want to give you a spiritual rest. What they had was so much better right now at this time in their in their lives than what they've had uh, in the past and I think it's good for us to to think about the rest that God has given us and what God's intent for us as his people and how we're supposed to rest because most of us would say in this room I've received Christ I'm in the new covenant I'm 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 forgiven of my sins and all those things are true but still we can even though in the context of that we can still fight against the way God has set things up and how we still relate to God a certain way. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30, it says this, he said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is something, we don't really talk about that, uh, yokes. I mean, we talk about an egg yoke and people getting all yoked up and, you know, uh, welcome to the gun show, you know, that type of stuff. But in terms of how they would be hearing this, it was, it was in their farming community. They'd have oxen yoked to each other. When we talk about being unequally yoked, spiritually with someone the imagery is two animals that are tied to each other and if they weren't equal in size and strength and and proficiency and so forth one of them or both would get hurt because they weren't equally yoked and so God has that imagery so when Jesus says take my yoke upon you 
He's saying, when you're connected to me, that's not going to create a lot of work for you. That's not going to create something that's going to fight against you being restful spiritually. He's talking about a spiritual rest. And he says there, for your souls. Our souls need rest. And he knows that. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So it's hard for us to process this because it seems like the Christian walk is very difficult at times. And it is. But that's having to do with crucifying our flesh and letting him live his life through our lives. To come to that point of surrender each day when we have our time with him, that's a difficult thing to do to get to our hearts to that place of surrender. But once our hearts are there and we're truly abiding in him, then wonderful things happen. He said in John chapter 6, verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do that that we may work the works, I mean, you can't put any more times you put the word work in a sentence, that we may work the works of God. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. These Jewish believers had done that. Now they're going back and being tempted to clock in <laughs> uh, when they were on a spiritual vacation. Here, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. They're saying the yoke is too difficult for us because of the implications of that yoke is that we get persecuted. But Jesus had already told them that he would be everything that they needed to be and more, or he needed to be and more in their lives to give them the grace to stand up to persecution. And so they were in danger of not entering into the abundant life. And that's really what the, the promised land is. You know, here we hear a lot of uh, hymns from from time past where they're talking about the promised land and getting to heaven and all that. And that's not really an accurate picture of what the promised land is for the believer. The promised land for the believer is the abundant Christian life. Eternal life starts, it's a condition. It's not really, when he talks about we have eternal life, he's talking about a condition of life. And, and of course it goes on, but it's a quality of life. Jesus said, I have come that they would have life and have it more abundantly. And there are believers and all of us deal with this at times, where we are functioning in such a way between, with our relationship with him where we are not spiritually resting. We are spiritually striving with him. We're fighting against what he wants for our lives, potentially, or we're relating to him in such a way where he, we believe that his, how he deals with us is supremely based on our performance. And when we're doing poorly, God's love and acceptance for me goes down. And when I'm doing really well spiritually, I'm, I'm having, you know, six-hour devotions, and I'm reading eight books of the Bible at a time, at a sitting, and all these ultra-spiritual things, and I'm worshiping the Lord, I'm sharing my faith left and right, I'm tackling people with the, you know, with the gospel. I'm just kidding, you know, get that extreme. But, you know, you're, you're, you're doing well spiritually, and all of a sudden, you can think, God, God is happy with me, and he loves me more, and he accepts me more. And that is not the abundant life that, about which Christ speaks. Why? Because he knows that if my relationship with him is based on my performance and how I view him viewing me, then because my spiritual health and how well I do goes up and down, myself included, then my relationship with him won't be that secure. And he knows that that isn't the way that we grow. So he's speaking of something far greater than just salvation. He's speaking about having that thirst in our souls quenched, talking about not ceasing and str- or, or not striving to try to earn some standing with him or, or get him to love me more, or accept me more. We couldn't be loved by God any more than we are. You know, we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that he demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So before we were born, The ultimate demonstration of his love was accomplished on the cross, and that should always reinforce our belief in his love for us, and we should never question it. And I know all of us will have times of being shaky, and and we need encouragement and all of that, but God wants to continuously help us into believing what he says about us and how he loves us and how he cares for us. I think of Martha and Mary. You know, Martha was so busy doing things for Jesus. And Mary sat at his feet and learned. And he never criticized Martha and said what she was doing wasn't important. But, the, but he, he commended Mary and how she choose, chose something very, very important 
that Martha evidently was neglecting, and that was sitting at his feet. And the picture of a striving, sometimes, a picture of the striving Christian life sometimes can be like a Martha, where, where to the neglect of sitting at the feet of Jesus and getting his strength and listening to what he says and his wisdom, you're so busy doing. And those things are great things, and God doesn't uh, insult you or, or, or he doesn't criticize those things, but he's far more concerned about you as a person and communing with you as a son or, or as his daughter than he ever is concerned about what you're doing for him. He wants you to do things for him, but there's a way to do things for him. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, he says, the works of the flesh, and he goes on this whole list. We don't even need to read that list because we, we know all about that stuff. But then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, and he lists the fruit of the Spirit. I can't tell you how encouraging that is. For, for me to read and for you to read that he describes what he produces in our lives as fruit. Because trees and plants and vineyards and all these things, they don't strive to produce fruit. And so in our crazy thinking, it's, you know, we can think that, well, I have to do works for God to get rest. And what his word says is that we need to walk in his rest. And then he'll produce fruit through our lives and do plenty of works for him. But we can't get them mixed up and, and switched around. We have to rest in him, be led by his spirit. One of the things that really blessed me when I first came to a Calvary Chapel is that people weren't scurrying around frantic and striving and trying to be worried about every little thing. I'm not, not saying it didn't exist there, but especially the leaders, and I watched the leaders, they weren't, they weren't striving, they weren't stressed out, they were just restful. And, and it really impacted me. And I've always wanted to let the Lord work in my life to where it's that way as well. Even no matter what's going on, and there's still chaos and lots of things that, that can happen in our ministries where we have legitimate concern, but we have God's assurance that he is the one overseeing the work. And he's the one that's giving us all that we need on any given day to do what he's called us to do. I believe that the Christian life has been designed by God to be so much easier than what we experience, many of us, and, and I'm sure all of us at some point in our lives. Because sometimes we try harder, and we roll up our sleeves in the power of our own strength, and we just try to make something happen, spiritually speaking. And, and God says, just, just wait on me. I mean, look at Jesus as the prime example. Think about his public ministry. Think about all the th pressures all the things that he had to deal with. Because we can think, well, wait, I deal with all these pressures. I have to be frantic and I have to be striving and all of that. Not more than Jesus did. Not more than Jesus had to experience. And he had plenty. He was very busy. He was very much into doing good works. I mean, he says, I always do that which the Father does or tells me to do. But you don't see Jesus stressed out. You don't see Jesus striving or trying to make things happen or wringing his hands and, and all those things. And I know that you know, he's our example, and, and, but we, we have to be working, letting him produce those things and going that direction. And so no matter what we find ourselves in life as a, as a mom, as a, a, a wife or a husband or a father or an employee or an employer, the Christian life is a life that is spirit-led and spirit-empowered. And, and he doesn't want us to have to try to live this life and try to strive and make things happen. What did he say in John chapter 15? He's speaking to these disciples. Cracks me up. They're fighting about who's the greatest. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Crickets. <laughs> Imagine after he said that, how quiet it got. Apart from me, you could do nothing. But he wants them to be very busy about his business. So he says, abide in me and I'll bear fruit through your life. And I will prune it. The Father will prune what's not needed. So why? So you can bear more fruit. But he doesn't tell the disciples, you need to work harder. You need to go harder and, and, and try harder in your own strength. He says, abide, just rest in me. Make your home in me, and I will produce through your life. I think if we try less in ourselves and yield to God more, we'll get so much more done and we'll be so much more peaceful and we'll model the Lord, not only in our family, in the context of our family, but unbelievers, and we're around unbelievers and they see our lives. Because a frantic life means that, that, I mean, if you really look at the bare minimum, the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, a frantic life is not a faith-filled life. And I, and I exhort myself all the time. A million different, I feel like Scooby-Doo, and he goes five different directions, all connected by his tail. Dun! 
you know, and, and I'm, where am I going? What's, what's happening next? And the Lord says, calm down. I got this. This is not your ministry. This is my ministry. It's my church. I'll build it. Quit trying to build something I said I would build. Relax and just enjoy life. The difficult Christian life can be a life that is thoroughly enjoyed. But it's all about focusing on letting him do the work. And if we do that, we're engaged in the abundant life that he's promised. And we're walking in the fullness, not just salvation, but we're walking in the fullness of that salvation in that we are restful in our souls. Now look, he gets in verse 12, so uh, amazing. He says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, we love this verse, but why is this verse here? (laughs) Why why does he bring up a, a, a very powerful, amazing verse related to the Word of God right in this context? Well, it does the context always unlocks the meaning. The forest always makes sense of of the trees. You, the trees make sense in light of the forest, right? And so he's saying, my, he's been saying this whole time, you can trust my word, you can trust my promises, you can, I'll back up what I say I'm going to do. And so the word of God is, because he's going to talk about in verse 13, accountability. So he's saying, I, my word is binding upon your life. There's no part of your life that it doesn't reach. And when I've told you to do something, and I've said that I'm going to do something for you or, or through you, my word is efficient enough to give you everything you need to trust what I say. Because it's going to penetrate the deepest parts. That's why he says it's living and powerful. I love when people, you know, try to pray, you know, make your word, you know, make your word powerful or, or make it, you know, something that's alive. Bring, bring life to your word. This verse says that his word's already alive. It's our hearts that are dull. It's our hearts that need help. His word doesn't need help. I don't need to pray for his word. It'll accomplish everything it's supposed to accomplish. And it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I've heard it quoted that your word's a two-edged sword. It's not. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. You didn't know that there was maybe a, a line in between or a boundary in between our souls, which is our mind, will, and emotions, and our spirits. But there is. And then the word of God can penetrate between those two things and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The end of verse 12 tells us that the word of God judges us. We don't judge the word of God. Cracks me up. The Jesus seminar a few years back, these so-called scholars are throwing different colored beads in to vote on certain verses that say that this is definitely inspired and this is not and this doesn't belong here and all this. And the word of God says, I'm judging you, Jack. (laughs) I'm judging you. The whole time you're trying to judge me, I'm judging you back. And even the Mormons will say, pray pray and ask if if, if the the, the Book of Mormon is true and all these things. I don't have to pray that any book is true because the Word of God judges my thoughts. I don't don't have to have a burning in my bosom to know that the the Book of Mormon is false. The Word of God judges it. And and it, it, it judges the deepest parts of who I am. So whatever God has promised for us, Wherever he's leading us in believing him, and not just generally as a church, but specifically in our lives, his word of God is is sufficient to to hit the deepest parts of who we are and to guide us in that process. But we are accountable. Look at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I remember when I was a new Christian and someone told me that when I sin... It's just as if I'm doing it right before the throne of God. Oh, great. Thanks for saying that. But I'm thankful. To, I was thankful to know that after the fact a little bit. It brought great accountability, which is true. We, I mean, he lives inside of us. He's omnipresent. It's not like he's far away in heaven. When we sin, he's like kind of knowing an impression of our sin and doesn't like it. And he keeps his distance. He's, I mean, it's like we're right there. He sees everything. And there's accountability. So because his word is so proficient in telling us what, his, what is worthy of our faith and worthy of our obedience, we have to know that he's watching if we obey him and we believe him or if, if we're going to waver and doubt what his word says. 
And he says, no creature is hidden from his sight. The word naked there is an interesting word. It means to be exposed, which is, you'd guess. But the word open is even more interesting. It only appears here in the New Testament. It's a word in ancient uh, Greek where they had used to describe a wrestler that gets somebody's neck exposed. And it's, in other words, like an open, you have an opportunity to get the neck in wrestling because you've created a, an opening. And that's, that's the idea, is that God, we're, our condition is completely vulnerable to God's sight. He sees every single thing going on. And notice at the end of verse 13, he says, to whom we must give an account. Someday, we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus. Not the great white throne judgment that happens at the end of the thousand-year millennium, but at the rapture, I believe it's going to happen during the great tribulation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to, we're going to stand before Jesus, just ourselves. And he's, heaven and hell is already handled. It's already taken care of. That's not the issue. It's giving an account as our, of our stewardship as believers. What we did for him, our motivation for why we did the things that we did. Did we do them in love? Did we do them spirit-directed in a spirit-directed way? And we'll have to give an account. And in Corinthians, when it talks about that bema seat, that judgment seat of Christ, unfortunately, people paint that picture as it's only a reward ceremony or an award ceremony there. But the bema seat was also a place of of judgment and we're not going to be judged to hell but we are going to have to give an account for our for our, our lives and our ministries there and he talks about you know getting out of that situation by the skin of our teeth so to speak in the sense of how, how strong the accountability will be and and we'll want to please him we'll, we've been wanting all this time to see him face to face we're seeing him face to face we're giving an account for our lives we don't want to grieve his heart and his heart doesn't want to be grieved and so forth. So he says, we must give an account. I believe every venture in faith and everything that he called us to do, every promise that he asked us to believe and step out on, he's going he's gonna to have those things before us to, to, to have a little talk about. Uh, and so every time that we have opportunity to honor him with our faith and to believe him and to let him work through our lives and enjoy that restful, abundant life that he's called us to, we need to take action and we need to do that and let him do the work through our lives. He's worthy of our faith, amen? So much greater than we could possibly express to him. He's worthy of more of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be good stewards of what you've called us to. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have so much to trust in. So many promises that you've said are yea and amen. Help us all, Lord, to abide in you to not strive, to rest in you, and to let you do the work in and through our lives. We know you've set it up to be so much easier than so many of us make it at times. We want to rest in you. We want to model what it looks like to be led by you and empowered by you. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us by your spirit in our individual lives and in our corporate assembly here that we don't need to strive that we can rest in you and your spirit and allow you to bear the beautiful fruit that you bear through our lives. Make our lives lives that are a blessing to others. We know that fruit, Lord, is for others to enjoy. And so we want our lives to be lives that others can enjoy for, for how you want to work in their lives. Thank you for this great word that you've given us this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name.